World War One, Part Three, History Stories Collection. Congress voted billions of money to be spent in various ways, and President Wilson loaned millions of dollars to England, France, and Italy. They in turn spent great sent great men to talk with those who were managing war preparations. Never did a nation give given to peace turn so quickly to war. Thousands of Americans in Europe had already been taking part for years. Some had joined the Canadian Army or the Lafayette Squadron, part of the French Air Service. Others were working under the Red Cross or the American Committee for the Relief of Belgium. Other measures necessary to mobilize the nation were quickly passed. The rail railroads were put under the control of a director general of railroads, who ran them first of all in the service of the army. A fuel administrator decided what factories and businesses were most necessary in the war and in the life of the nation. Others had to limit their use of coal or to close down entirely for a short time. Herbert Hoover, head of the great committee which had charge of feeding the starving people of Belgium, was made food administrator. On one hand, he decided how much food whole nations could buy of the United States. On the other, he helped American housewives plan their daily meals to save the wheat, meat, and fat that were needed for the soldiers because food would win the war. Millions of soldiers would have been America's share of the Allied fighting forces if the war had gone on longer. Congress decided that a selective draft would be the most fair and just method of raising these millions. All men between the ages of 21 and 30, and later between 19 and 45, had to be examined by draft boards and the proper number selected. Immense training camps were built with railroad lines, electric light, and water systems and all the needs of a modern city. Many of these camps sprang up in a few months, ready to take care of 50,000 men apiece. All these preparations at home were more businesslike than they were stirring and warlike. They meant a great change in the life of the whole nation. Workers were shifted from all kinds of small, unimportant peacetime tasks to a few gigantic businesses on which the success of the war depended. All the efforts of the nation were centered on saving goods, time, and money, producing goods to carry on the war. The home front did not give great honors to those who held it, but the war was had the nearly unanimous support of the people. There are few famous names in the fighting abroad and few too at home. Deeds were accomplished. Fleets built, factories multiplied, wastelands planted, two million men sent across the seas, and the war brought to a swift end. The War of 1914 through 1918 was a large war. The number of lives lost, the cost of in goods and money, the number of nations in it, and the changes it has made among nations. 
Its size is too vast for any one mind to picture it fully. The front-line trenches, with all their turns and twists, are six hundred miles long, nearly equal to the straight distance from Philadelphia to Chicago. Mountains of material had to be sent across to keep soldiers well fed and warmly clothed, and furnished with the cannon and shells they must have to meet the enemy. Only about two out of three men in the army could fight, for the third man had to keep these mammoth quantities of supplies steadily moving toward the front. Ships were the thing the government needed most, since it was fighting so far away from home. American shipyards grew so rapidly that they broke all records for number of ships launched and swiftness in building them. The United States soon led the world in shipbuilding for this war. The War Department was so anxious to keep men warm and comfortable that it bought up all the wool in the country. The Army had to have 35 million more pairs of woolen socks than were made for the whole nation in 1914. It used more woolen blankets in one year than the 100 million people in the United States bought in two ordinary years. Every movement in the war had to be planned as exactly as possible. This was a war of science rather than a war of dashing adventure, as those in the past had been. Before attacks were made on the enemy, a barrage or curtain-like rain of shells was turned on in his lines. This curtain of fire moved forward at a fixed rate, and the men walked behind it. They had strict orders to go only so many yards a minute, or their own guns would kill them. Poison gas was one of the new weapons of this war. It caused almost one-third of the United States' losses in 1918. Science produced new gases so rapidly that investors had to be continually making new gas masks to strain out the deadly fumes. Over 30 kinds of gas were used during the war. No one commander could be president once on every part of the hundreds of miles of battle lines, or even a small part of them. The war had to be carried on largely by telephone. The Americans strung 100,000 miles of wire in France. The youngest of American generals, John Joseph Pershing, was put at the head of American forces. The choice of Pershing was held everywhere as a wise one. A war so immense and mechanical needed a general who had studied the art of war thoroughly as Pershing had. He had seen much actual fighting and was the only American general who had commanded a division in actual war. He carried with him the love and respect of all National Guardsmen. They would have followed him anywhere he wished to lead. We have already heard how he had routed villas, bandits in Mexico. He had also led a charge of, of troops against the Spaniards in Cuba, and had conquered a powerful savage tribe in the Philippines. Before he was sent to Mexico, he had been governor of a province in the Philippines for four years. As a boy, Pershing was brave and modest, with the ability to stay by hard task until he finished it. John was a hardy, active boy. He played at mimic war and attended school. He played hooky and got into fights with his fellows, but he was square. One day the father saw the signs of battle-torn clothes and a bruised face. Been fighting? Never let any boy say that he was, has licked you, was the father's remark. John had expected a whipping. 
At day school, he was a plotter, but he did win a prize, a nicely bound volume of The Life of Washington. This was offered by the president of the school board. John's mother was there. The children clapped and called for a speech. I'm sorry you didn't all win a prize. I'm going to grow up like Washington, he said. In the 70s, when times were bad, John had to help earn the family living, and he did it by teaching some of the hardest schools in the district. He took the examinations for West Point when he was 20 and defeated his friend. I'm sorry you could not win, too, he said. At the end of his first year at West Point, he was made class leader, a position won only by hard study. After he graduated from West Point, honors and promotions came fast. Roosevelt had passed by 862 older officers to make him a brigadier general. At the beginning of the war, he was major general, and later Congress promoted him to the full rank of general, a very rare honor and the highest in its power to give. When Pershing, with a few officers and engineers, first landed in France, the news spread quickly the Americans had have come. Their arrival meant that the United States would soon take part in the fighting in earnest. New life and fresh, fresh resolution came into the hearts of the war-tired veterans of France. Thank you.